and welcome to episode 15, 73 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Oh, I'm in mourning a little yeah. bit. <laughs> we'll talk about why in just a moment. Yeah, we'll talk about why in a moment. We'll also be joined later in this episode by Ben Mertens, who's the Mariners Senior Director of Productions, who's going to answer all of our burning questions about the soundboard and the fake yes. crowd sound and the seat fleet, as the Mariners have dubbed their uh, crowd of, of cardboard cutout fans. So we will be joined by him a little bit later. But first, Ben, I'm, you know, it is all of our loss. It is most especially Shohei Otani's loss. But yeah. uh, I feel like of all of the members of the baseball uh, writing community, you are feeling this sting perhaps the most keenly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are a lot of others out there who care just as deeply about Shohei's career prospects as I do. But yes, this is painful, figuratively painful for me, perhaps physically painful for him. But in his second start on Sunday, he initially looked great, you know, which uh, made it all the more disappointing when things went south again for him. So he had a 1-2-3 first inning, and his velocity seemed to be up from his previous start, and he threw a splitter, and he got a strikeout, and he looked almost like his old self, and then he came back out for the second inning and at some point suffered a pretty precipitous velocity loss, and that is never a good sign. And then his control kind of went too, and he walked a few guys, and he didn't make it out of that inning. And that was bad enough, but when you couple it with the velocity decline, it was quite worrisome. And the Angels sent him for an MRI after the game. He complained of some discomfort. And on Monday, we got the results, which is that he has a forearm strain, as it's being called. We're all getting very familiar with that term these days. It's, uh, I guess, more technically a grade one to two strain of the flexor pronator mass. And there's a pretty big difference, I guess, between a, a grade one strain and a grade two strain. So it's one of those things. But for now, he is not on the injured list. It sounds like he is not going to pitch for four to six weeks, which is, you know, basically the rest of the season almost. Yeah. Uh, so that's very depressing. And he may be able to hit. He may be able to DH and, and be day to day in that role. But we have either seen the last of his pitching efforts this season or just about. And, you know, if four to six weeks takes him up to almost the end of the season, if we get that far, then you might wonder whether the Angels will just decide to say, let's not push it. Let's just give him even more rest, you know, so that may be it Two extremely brief starts. And that might be the end of Tuwe Otani for another season. Yeah, and it makes you wonder what his long-term prospects as a pitcher really will end up being, which we don't have to grapple with that loss. It is a, a theoretical one at this point, as my mom would say, save your panic until you need it. <laughs> but it certainly makes the proposition look uh, dicier and dicier. I think that there will be a fair amount of hand-wringing and sort of questioning of why Joe Madden made some of the managerial decisions he did in Sunday's start. I don't know why Otani was allowed to throw 42 pitches in an inning. Mm, yeah. <laughs> His second start back from surgery and, and granted, you know, Madden knows well, or at least I think has a better handle on what he thinks Otani's abilities are in any given moment, but given how he was laboring and the walks and his recent injury history, I think that you know, a, a skeptical eyebrow raise is warranted, even if we are not ready to make a sink about this. But yeah, it's just it's just a real bummer. I think one of the things that we were all excited about in this abbreviated season was that its start date was, you know, brought about by awful circumstances, but was at least going to allow for a number of, of players who were injured in some way, shape or form to be ready to do baseball stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and we like how Otani can do both both of the baseball stuffs. That's a great <laughs> that's a great combination of stuff to be able to do. So yeah. it's it's really a bummer. You know, I hope that he is that this does not affect his ability to DH. I know that mm -hmm. the Angels were kind of conservative in their assessment of that in the statement that they released, which makes sense that he's sort of day to day as a DH, but the only thing that would be worse then no two-way Otani would be no Otani at all. So I hope that yeah. he is able to kind of do what he do what he needs to there. 
Yeah, I mean, as soon as anything happens to him, as soon as he has an injury, as soon as he has a lousy start, you do see people start to say, well, I wonder if he can do this. I mean, people were saying that before he got over here just because there's so little precedent, so little recent precedent for this that you're always going to be doubting and skeptical, and that's absolutely understandable. And because he's proved himself to be a good hitter, that makes it all the more dicey to have right. him start because if he's endangering his health on the mound, then he's endangering his availability as a DH, and, and that hurts the Angels also. So I hope that it's too soon to make that sort of decision. I mean, yes, he had Tommy John surgery, but hey, a lot of pitchers unfortunately have Tommy John surgery, and many of them are fine for years thereafter. And this year, we're seeing just a really unprecedented rash of injuries, particularly forearm strains and shoulder issues. I mean, it's just everywhere right now. I talked about it with Sam a little bit last week, but it's really only intensified since then. And my article came out on Monday at The Ringer about this, and it's really just a, a huge spike in injuries, even relative to early in previous seasons, which tends to be a dangerous time for pitchers period. But this year, just because of the stop and start nature of training, because of the abbreviated ramp up to the season, it seems like guys are just really hurting themselves left and right. And even on Monday, when we got the news about Otani, Rich Hill was scratched from a start. Okay, we love Rich Hill, but he's scratched from every other start. So that's not the most (laughs) shocking thing. But, you know, Mike Soroka seems to have potentially seriously injured himself. And it looks like maybe an Achilles injury. Yeah, right before we started recording, it looks like we might have lost Soroka for the for the duration here. Yeah, based on what it looks like, that's not particularly surprising. And no. Carlos Rodon was pulled from his start because of shoulder soreness. And these are all different injuries. I mean, what happened to Soroka is different from what happened to Otani or, or sure. Rodon. But there are just so many arm injuries. And I think it's well past the point where we could say it's a coincidence and Really, that just drives home why players really stuck to getting prorated salaries because they were taking a lot of risks playing this year, not just the coronavirus, but also injuries and irregular training routines, and it's really manifesting itself. So the fact that this happened to Otani at this particular time when it's happening to so many pitchers and some pitching staffs are really just devastated right now. I mean, the the Astros have lost seemingly half their staff to elbow injuries, shoulder injuries, etc. So Otani's not alone there, but yeah, you have to worry about it. And, you know, if he can DH while he is recovering, then that does take some of the sting out of it because he's not unavailable at that thing that he does well. But yeah, long term, you do have to worry just because he is such a a good hitter potentially. But if he were to become a full-time position player, you would want him to play the field, ideally, just because he does have some experience in the outfield and right. certainly seems to have the, the skills and the athleticism to do that. But on the Angels, at least, you have Trout out there. You have Joe Adele out there yeah. who was called up on Monday. So that's exciting. Circle of life, I guess. Angels <laughs> lose Otani, at least in one way. They get Joe Adele and Then you have Justin Upton out there, at least for now. So there isn't really an obvious opening for Otani. And so, you know, if you were to put him at first base or something, then his defensive value is pretty diminished there too. So I don't know. I, I have to almost separate what my heart wants from what my head says, or or at a certain point I'll have to do that, because like coldly, analytically, if Otani does keep getting hurt, then at a certain point, you might have to say, well, he tried, but you know, you have to, to get what you can out of him. But I'm not at that point yet. I hope the Angels are not at that point yet. And if we do get to that point where that is sort of on paper the right move, and if he is okay with it and that happens then it'll just be something that I lament for a long time that we only got the the fully operational Otani for really just a month or two of his debut season because it was so tantalizing. And if it doesn't work out longer than that, then it'll probably just go to show that it's not really feasible for, for most guys because, you know, even if you have the rare skills that he has, you may just not be able to hold up to that strain. And, and that's why it was so special that he yeah. was doing it and may still do it because it's so difficult to do. 
Yeah, and it, it makes the fact that the rules around international free agent signings and bonuses changing the way they did right before he signed makes it more painful, right? Because his prospects when he is in a position to sort of make money again are really different if he is DH only than if yeah. he is a viable starter who can also DH in a meaningful way. So like that's a bummer. It seemed like at the onset of the KBO season that we were seeing a lot of soft tissue injuries. Yeah. You know, you had a lot of guys coming up with like, you know, tweaked hammies and this and that. And it seemed I guess there were some pitcher misfortunes in the midst of that, but I don't know that at the time then or even now. I mean, I, I your article is very good, but I, I think it is hard to isolate the abbreviated start and the sort of start and stop nature of the season to to this, but it can't be helping. And yeah. I don't think that we can prove it quite definitively, but this is two leagues now where you were seeing just sort of a rash of injuries very early on. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen it manifest in quite the same way on the position player side, but yeah, yeah it's just... Like you said, these guys are taking a tremendous risk to play and you don't want anything to stop their season, but to do all that work and then find yourself felled by something so pedestrian and normal, right? In some ways, it's it's good is the wrong word, but it's at least it's not COVID, right? Like there are things mm-hmm. that would be much more concerning and sort of immediately threatening to a a player's health, but it does just, you know, it feels so 2020. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, they do all this and then like Mike's work tears his Achilles of all of all things, right? Yeah. So it's just, it's really unfortunate. I hope these guys can come back, you know, healthy and that the fact that this is happening in August for some of these guys doesn't have any effect on their off season or the beginning of their year next year. So it's just, it's just really a bummer. Yep, yep. And it's not really a a purely post hoc thing. It's not like we had all these injuries happen and then everyone said, oh, it must be because of this strange season. People were sounding that alarm and spreading those warnings well before the season started and teams were trying to structure their training programs to compensate for that if they could and and teams have lightened the workloads of their starters a little if you compare this season to last season at the same point guys are going less deep into games they're throwing fewer pitches although that's partly because pitchers keep getting pulled after a couple innings because they keep hurting themselves so that is dragging down the pitch counts too but it's not solely that so no Yeah, it's concerning. Based on my conversations for that piece, the people I spoke to said that maybe within the next couple of weeks, the the elevated risk should decline at least. So if you are going to have an injury that is related to that brief ramp up to the season, then it will probably manifest pretty early on or not at all. So I guess the, the guys who are still unscathed, if they can get through this very vulnerable period, then maybe if the season continues, they won't be at greater risk than usual after that. Although Trevor Williams on the Pirates said that people are going to be talking about this over this coming offseason too, just because pitchers will have had such light workloads going right. into next year that it will continue to be a question how how heavy can the workloads be next year and what do you have to do for those training routines so we shall see and i hope that we will see otani on the mound again yeah it's it's such a i mean we've had conversations about this sort of throughout the layoff and then into camp it's such a difficult problem to solve it's so unlike anything that we've seen before it's not quite like any injury even any in-season injury that you you've seen pitchers or hitters for that matter really experience before because you're you're not building up from nothing and they aren't hurt at least for the most part as far as we know but they are then sort of ramping down and not seeing game action. So I don't envy any of the training staffs throughout baseball for the the sort of task that they had coming into this year. And like you said, I doubt it's going to immediately resolve itself when this weird season does. So yeah. hopefully we don't have too much of a 
in every possible respect. Hopefully, we don't have too much of a 2020 hangover going into 2021. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, and God. at least the season is still going, which... Uh, For now. <laughs> not entirely clear that it, it would be on Monday when we last spoke. So yeah. I guess that's a minor victory. Although, uh, again, it has continued to come at a cost, not only with those injuries, but with continued positive tests and the Cardinals, their tally is now up to, what, seven players and six staff members and their whole series this week against the Tigers has been called off, so they won't play until at least Friday. And their Field of Dreams game with the White Sox for next week has been canceled, supposedly for non-COVID-related reasons, but still seems almost symbolic. But the season rolls on regardless. We've lost a, a couple players to opt-outs, too. Lorenzo Cain opted out. Ioannis Cespedes opted out under somewhat confounding circumstances because it's the Mets and nothing seems to go smoothly no. over there. <laughs> but but it keeps rolling on and, and some fun things have happened, like Nick Madrigal having a, a four-hit game. That yeah. was fun. And Clayton Kershaw came back and looked like not his uh, vintage self, but something closer to his vintage self. And yeah. he was you know, getting the, the fastball up over 93, which was not something that he was doing ever or with any regularity when we last saw him. So maybe his winter trip to driveline paid off. And you have Aaron Judge hitting home runs every day. And you have Tyler Alexander striking out nine consecutive yeah. hitters, which uh, was my introduction to Tyler Alexander. <laughs> Can't say I was familiar with his work before he tied the AL record for consecutive strikeouts and set the reliever record and came quite close to setting the major league record, which Tom Seaver still owns. But the headline on the Fangraphs post about that by Tony Wolf was, anyone can strike out nine batters in a row, which... Uh, you know, is a slight hyperbole, but certainly Tyler Alexander would not have been high on my list yes. of candidates before that actually happened. Yes, I promise that that Tyler Alexander is given his due. It is yes, you know, it is a it's a little bit sassy. It's an appropriately mm-hmm. sassy headline to make you say, "Oh, oh, really?" Now, yeah. but yeah, uh, Tony took a, a look at his three and two thirds innings, and you know, he benefited as as any pitcher does in a very good performance. He benefited fitted a little bit from yeah you know he had a wide zone mm-hmm. that worked in his favor but yeah he he had a lot of stuff going for him that day and the reds certainly struggled to to get anywhere i i worried i you know there are times in the in the early going when you know everybody's kind of working out the kinks of stuff and i looked at the sort of live scoreboard and I was like, oh, no, we have a data issue. <laughs> it's yeah. like something, uh-oh, something's wrong. I, I was like, I got to alert David and let him know. We got a, we got a problem. We got to yeah. look at this. And then I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm pleasantly surprised to be wrong. What a, what a delightful thing in yeah. this year to be like, oh, no, someone's just having a really good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tigers, Tyler Alexander. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> he he is uh he's in his sophomore season. He was a starter last year. Yeah, and uh, not a particularly remarkable one. I guess he he had good strikeout to walk ratio, but was certainly not really a strikeout artist. And this year he has moved to the bullpen. And you might think, okay, he's one of these guys who really takes to the pen and is suddenly throwing super fastballs and striking everyone out. But that's not really the case either, as Tony pointed out in his post it doesn't seem like his stuff has taken a huge leap and coming into that outing in which he suddenly started striking out everyone he had only struck out three guys in four innings of work in his three games this year and yet he came within one hit by pitch of like yeah. striking out 11 consecutive guys because he ended up with 10 and he got to two strikes on the guy he hit, Mike Moustakis, I think. So it was really kind of incredible. He's just not the the player that you would have expected. And yeah, it's a, a high strikeout era and strikeouts have been more common than ever, but the Reds have been kind of a tough team to strike out this season apart from Tyler Alexander. So these weird, wacky things happen sometimes, which is why we're happy that baseball is around most of the time. 
Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things that, you know, there, there are some performances and guys succeeding that are exciting and it's very easy to lose sight of those and, you know, we need to put them in their proper perspective in terms of how important they are in a year like this. But if we're gonna do it at all, yeah, you know, I'm glad that like Shane Bieber's pitching the way he is. It's nice to see Corey Seager just always hitting Corey mm-hmm. Seager's is always hitting Ben. Yeah, I feel like we kind of forgot about Corey Seager a yeah. little bit. I mean, he, he understandably, I, I guess, did not get the same sort of preseason hype that Bellinger or Betts did. I mean, if you're a former MVP, you're going to overshadow someone else. But Corey Seager was a total superstar. Like yep. a couple of years ago, he was a, an MVP contender himself. Back in 2016, 2017, he was that kind of player, and he's only 26 years old, and it's just the the Dodgers are so deep. And like even last year, coming off of his injury-shortened 2018 season, he was still a really good player, Mm -hmm. just not the star that he had been before. So the Dodgers are just so deep that you can kind of forget about Corey Seager, whereas like on a lot of other franchises, he would be on the cover of the media guide. Yeah, I, I was talking to someone about this earlier today where, because, you know, like the matchup tonight for San Diego and LA was just like really great and enticing Bueller and, and Paddock. What a, mm-hmm. what a delight. And, you know, Corey Seager, like, Again, we don't know what stats mean this year, but everyone can appreciate this line. So Corey Seager granted his 40 plate appearances on the season is now, excuse me, it's 42, is now hitting 395, (laughs) 452, 737. He has a a 227 WRC+. He and his brother are both having two hit nights, so that's sort of fun. (laughs) But so like Corey Seager is is doing this. This is amazing. He's been worth... (laughs) 0.7 0.7 wins in nine games this is great. Yep. This year means nothing, but it means everything. I don't know. Every <laughs> up is down, and uh, and you know he's doing this, and he's like a very quiet, early going MVP candidate. And you know, granted, late nine games, whatever. But he's hitting sixth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's hitting sixth for the Dodgers. Like, what are we? What is this lineup? What are we doing? Mookie Betts isn't even playing tonight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So that part, you know, that's that's the thing we're doing. Yeah, and you know the ratings have been strong for this season so far. The yeah. the Wall Street Journal had an article about the ratings, which were up in the first weekend, but have continued to be up compared to previous seasons, which makes sense. <laughs> I think people are starved for sports, probably, and missed baseball, and have more time on their hands and fewer other entertainment options, and so they have embraced baseball despite all of the misgivings about some of the things that are going on. I. I think it is unsurprising that people are happy to see baseball and are watching it in greater numbers. And so that would make it even sadder if we lost it again. I think at this point, MLB is maybe just hoping to stick it out as long as possible to get to the playoffs. Like if they could, I don't know how many games or what percentage of the season they would need to complete to be comfortable saying, okay, let's just, do the playoffs now because 60 games, you know, it's not going to be all that telling anyway. But if we got through 40 or something, or if we got through more than half the schedule, then could we just say, all right, we'll, we'll just get the remaining teams in a bubble or something. And, you know, we'll have them right. play for, for a month at, at most, because of course they want the, the TV money and their broadcast partners want those games and the players want the playoff pool money that they would be getting too. So I don't know how much of the season you need to get through for it to be viewed as legitimate. I mean, at this point, I don't know that people are really viewing this season as particularly legitimate anyway, just because so many teams have been sidelined, so many players have been hurt. I think we're all squarely in asterisk territory here now. So maybe if you just get through most of the season, then you could just say, okay, we'll isolate the remaining teams and we'll have a fun little tournament, which is maybe what should have happened in the first place. So I could see that happening too. Do you think that the 
the fact that the playoffs have expanded and so the barrier to entry is now lower anyway helps or hurts in that regard? Do you think they need to play more or less of the season in order mm. for them to say, okay, we've, we've, we have enough to seed the field <laughs> in a way that we feel comfortable with and everyone's going to, you know, reconvene in Arizona or, or Florida or wherever, you know, because again, those are just like the very best places to bring a bunch of people together. Yeah. And we're going to test everybody and we're going to do a bubble and that's how we're going to do the playoffs. I can't decide if the fact that the, the barrier is lower means that they're more likely to call it sooner or less likely i can't decide i think more likely i think there would be fewer objections because the playoff field is so big both because more teams would be in it right so so fewer fans would complain because just you know more teams would be represented and also i think there just there would have been a bunch of maybe mediocre teams in the playoff field anyway and you're less likely to exclude a team that everyone thinks is deserving of being in the playoffs so i think for those reasons and for the fact that it's just such a deviation from the norm right. already that once you break that seal it's like all right well we're doing 16 team playoff field that was announced literally on opening day as the first game was going on so sure whatever we'll just end the season and and start that now and it'll be a a fun little tournament so i think more likely yeah i guess it just depends on how tight the races are and which teams that have been affected in the early going here by the pandemic are close or not right like Mm -hmm. i think we you know when we look at the fangraphs playoff odds the central, I mean, the Cardinals' playoff odds have dipped slightly. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but if you round up to the nearest whole number, the Cubs, Reds, Brewers, and Cardinals all have 50% odds or better to make the playoffs. So mm-hmm. I guess it sort of just depends on who's close and how many teams are close. If we have, you know, a couple of runaways, then maybe we just get comfortable saying, okay, we've we've done as much as we reasonably can. We're concerned about we're concerned about covid and uh you know let's let's do a tourney and do it in a place where because with fewer teams later in the year some of the practical hurdles of the bubble become i think more surmountable in a place like arizona because you know it'll be well hopefully for the people who live in the greater phoenix area it will not be 115 degrees every day and you'll you know, you'll have 16 teams instead of 30. And so that's, you know, it's like spring training. You're used to sort of dealing with that kind of influx. So, of course, that all assumes that that things in Arizona continue to improve because you don't want to introduce 16 teams worth of players and testing to a region that's as overwhelmed by corona as sort of arizona is right now so i imagine that that will well i hope that that will factor into mlb's decision making when it comes to this stuff but it might be a little more practicable in a couple of months than or weeks than it is now so yeah as many people have pointed out the standings look so strange right now oh my gosh breaks your brain every time you look at it because like Teams are listed by winning percentage, which I I guess you have to do right now, but the result of that is that you have the Marlins in first place in the (laughs) NL East right now with a 2 and one record, (laughs) and they're one game ahead of the Braves, who are 7-4. and So the Braves have played 11 games, the Marlins have played three games, and the Marlins are in first place. So I don't really know what to make of that. Then you have the Nationals at 3-4, and the Mets at 4-7, and the Phillies at 1-2, and or I guess they're about to lose, so maybe 1-3. and So it really runs the gamut from three games to 11 games, and yet they're all squeezed into the same standings, which happened in 1981. There were differences I think the games played totaled that year ranged from something like a 103 to 111 or 112, but that was over a great many games, and this is over very few games, and we're seeing the same sort of differential, and it's just hard to imagine all or even most of those games getting made up, even if those teams recover, even if yeah. they play a bunch of seven-inning doubleheaders. So we're going to be stuck with these strange-looking standings all season long, so I, I guess we're just going to have to get used to that. 
Yeah, I mean, like, okay, let's, I'm going to do one of those things where I make you react to something on the fly, but it, it'll be quick just because okay. of how wonky this is. So when you hit a team where their placement throws you, say, stop, it's okay. going to be really fast. So right now in the AL, we have the Yankees with the best record, best winning percentage, then the sure. Twins. Okay. Than the Orioles. Stop. Okay. So it's going to go even faster in the NL. You have the Cubs up top. We can, uh -huh. that seems weird and fluky, but like weird stuff happens in nine games. Then you have the Rockies. Stop. Okay. Because then it's the Dodgers, the Marlins, you know, that doesn't count. It's three games. But yeah. then, you know, it's like you look at our leaderboards just on the position player side. And again, like at most 10 games, right? But right now, and these numbers are so small that it doesn't, there isn't really a meaningful difference in any kind of real way that you would feel comfortable saying, well, this proves that this guy is so much better than that guy. But Mike Yastrzemski is leading yeah. <laughs> baseball in, in war right now on the position mm -hmm. player side. Then you have Luis Robert, who's played nine games. You have Judge, yeah. Castellanos, Corey Seager, Mookie Betts, Trevor Story, Donovan Solano. Yeah. <laughs> Hans yeah. Alberto, J.P. Crawford, and Kyle Lewis. When you have mm -hmm. multiple Mariners breaking the top 15 <laughs> in a year like this, and and I should say, J.P. Crawford having a terrific start. Kyle Lewis, a mm -hmm. wonderful start. I, I think Michael Bauman put it well on Twitter. He spent so much time thinking about whether Kyle Lewis would be healthy that he didn't even stop to consider whether he would be good. <laughs> yeah. And so here he is being good. Trent Grisham is 12th. Michael Brantley is 13th, Jose Ramirez at 14th, and Marcelo Zuna at 15th. It's just some yep. of those names make sense, and some yes. of them really don't. No. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going to continue to be the case as, as long as we're playing baseball this season. And on the other end of the spectrum, Christian Yelich is batting 097, and the White Sox are walking Keston Hura to face him. But yep. Luis Robert has been very exciting and has yeah. looked very legitimately great. And yeah. if we do a, a, a conversation with Eric Longenhagen later in this week to talk about all of these great prospects who have come up already, I'm sure he will be heavily featured in that conversation. Yeah. So just the last thing I wanted to mention is that related to our conversation in the last episode about why we haven't seen robot umps in this MLB season, it was reported that the KBO will be implementing electronic strike zones in the Futures League, which is the KBO equivalent of the minor leagues, which, as you pointed out offline to me, is a much better name. Way than better the name. Minor leagues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Futures League. I like it. So that will be happening in, I think, two minor league stadiums now. And uh, a lot of those games will be called with the electronic zone, which was supposed to happen at some levels in this minor league season when there was supposed to be a minor league season. So we would have seen this stateside too, but uh, we didn't get to have a minor league season. So the KBO is trying this out and that will be more valuable data, I'm sure, to go along with the Atlantic League data and future minor league data that will be used when MLB is making decisions about whether to port the system to the big leagues. Yeah, I would imagine so. Futures League is just, it's so bright and optimistic. It's like yeah. they, these these young people, they are the future of our endeavor. They are the yeah. future of our sport. It's shiny. Yeah. You know, it, it like confers importance and status on the uh, folks playing at that level. And uh, so much, you know, I doubt, I don't know. I'm going to say a thing that I actually have no, I have no way of knowing if I'm right or wrong. And I am very open to correction, but I have asserted that the meanest, in a very small and quiet way, the meanest transaction that we we refer to in baseball is recalling because mm -hmm. it just suggests like I forgot you existed until I had to like sub you <laughs> in because that guy blew his arm out. So yeah. I doubt in the Futures League you ever recall a picture. Of course you don't. You 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 think about the future all the time because it's bright and shiny and optimistic. So yeah. that doesn't have anything to do with robot ups, but it does have to do with uh, me wishing that we called stuff different stuff. <laughs> yeah, minors sound so negative. It's less than the majors. Why can't we concentrate on the positive? They're the future. Their brightest days are ahead of them. I guess we do have the futures game. But these days, guys are getting recalled from the alternate site, which is always capitalized alternate site. Yeah. And it sounds so dystopian. It's yeah. like, it's like alternate site. Yeah. Can't we come up with a, a nicer name than that? I guess there's no sugarcoating it. But really, just like, I don't know, just call it 
camp or or something. I don't know. I mean, maybe if summer camp was was too lighthearted for some people, alternate site is too foreboding for me. Yeah, it sounds like a deleted scene from Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very it's very upsetting. I mean, I sometimes I appreciate when brands they don't try to make a thing cutesy that isn't mm-hmm. cutesy. You know, it's like um or like when corporations engage in this like double speak that makes a thing that is actually awful sound great. Like when I I think this is still true. When I worked at Goldman, it wasn't HR, it was human capital management. Ooh. Which like that's some alternate site kind of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And so that was terrible in like an objective way. So I guess it's it's better to be honest. Mm-hmm. I we're we're saying the quiet part out loud a lot, so I guess why stop there? Yeah, yeah, at least it's not alternate site sponsored by Camping World. <laughs> and, yeah, and speaking of kind of creepy titles, MLB hired a chief people and culture officer hmm. on Monday, which uh, sounds like a, a much-needed position. And, and Michelle Meyer-Ship, who was hired to do that job, sounds like she is much needed in that world. But chief people and culture officer is also just kind of a, a strange term to me. Yeah, I don't know. The brands, man, they're yeah. they're out of the tr- out of control. How are the A's ahead 9 to 1 now? What has <laughs> happened? I don't know. We hmm. I mean, I guess it's the 7th and it's the Mariners bullpen, but my stars. <laughs> that's that's brutal. Is this game taking place in T-Mobile Park or is this on the it, road? It is taking place in T-Mobile Park, Ben. Okay. What a lovely transition you just introduced. <laughs> you know what else yeah. happens in T-Mobile Park? A lot of fake crowns out. I know. And the the fake fans are probably not pleased right now. And it is the responsibility of our guest, Ben Mertens, to make them sound appropriately sad about this A's rally. So we will take a quick break and we will be back with other Ben to tell us how the fake fan sausage is made. What a good little transition. We've had a number of questions about piped-in sound and fake fans in the stands. And to answer those questions and help us get a handle on how MLB broadcasts will be run this year, we are joined now by Ben Mertens, who's the Senior Director of Productions for the Seattle Mariners. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Good morning, and and, and thanks for having me on on the show. Happy to have you. So last week, the Mariners sent out a press release quoting you that said, before the start of the season, MLB distributed digital touchpads loaded with the sound effects to all 30 teams. Ben Mertens here with us today. Senior Director of Production says the Mariners will use the effects to create some 75 different crowd reactions to bring a realistic atmosphere to games. Cheers and boos I get, but what are some of the other reactions that you are supplied by the league? How many different kinds of boos are there? And do you anticipate you're going to be able to cycle through all of them in this season? You know, it, it's, it's a fun question that a lot of people have asked. And just for uh, formality's sake, on, on the touchpad, they're not called booze, Meg. They're, they're called disappointments or reactions. So uh, I'll, probably, <laughs> I'll probably refer to them as, as that as we talk. But, you know, there's a lot of different effects. You know, we worked with Sony and MLB The Show, and, and their, their library has nearly a thousand different sound effects that they use for that game. And those are all built by uh, or they're playing the game by based off algorithms of what happens. And so double plays and all those type of things get a different response. And obviously, if we would have given those to our operators, the, a thousand different sound effects to work with would be kind of hard to manage. So with inputs from the teams and then at the league level, you know, we narrowed that list of, of sound effects down to the 70 some that were mentioned in the press release. And they're as, as basic as that crowd murmur that you would hear when you'd enter the ballpark to uh, even louder just uh, rumbles in, in the crowd as maybe you get later in the inning and you know maybe when the Mariners get somebody in scoring position on second base and maybe they're down by one run or it's tied. And so that level of just the crowd murmur raises. Uh, and then there's different effects from, 
you know, once the ball makes contact with the bat, you know, initially the crowd always reacts to that. So that anticipation of what's going to happen. And then, of course, with the end of the result of the play, if it's, you know, if let's just say it's, it's Kyle Lewis at the, uh, in the batter's box and he crushes one and let's say it goes fair and over the wall, you get that eruption of the crowd noise. But let's just say maybe it hooks foul and you get that, oh, disappointment of, of, of almost home run. And so those are kind of the different things that, that the league has provided every team. And, and, you know, if you're not looking into the ballpark and you're, you're, you're just listening to either the, the sound of the game or, or a broadcast, it, it does make you feel like there are, you know, that, that team old park is full of, full of fans. And so it's, uh, it's, it's been a, a fun experience for our operators to, uh, to, uh, try out. And, and I think it's, it's, we're learning, but I, I do think it adds a, a sense of normalcy to the game. Yeah, I, I want to know everything about the touchpad. <laughs> so tell me about the layout. How do you access the various sounds and what kind of learning curve is there? Because something like the example you just mentioned, that would require a pretty tight turnaround time. I mean, if you want to get an organic sounding reaction to a ball that looks like it's going to go fair and then goes foul, I mean, that happens in real time with a real crowd because people are having that reaction as they see it and they're uttering these sounds. But for you to re- capture that you'd have to have the operator of the touchpad very very quickly just think of what to do and then find the right button to press the thing it seems like it would be difficult to actually get those sounds out in sequence in time so how does it work just on a very mechanical level Uh, you know and and you're talking to a guy who actually hasn't run it during a game yet but i have messed with the device and and to that point you know the operator this is somebody who has to be paying attention to every moment of the game, every pitch. They cannot be, you know, you can't be checking your phone. You can't be uh, uh, responding to a text message. You have to be dialed in. And, and so the touchpad itself has uh, has four tabs. And so the first tab is the beds tab. And on there, there's, you know, about five to six different generic beds. And those are almost like a constant bed. So once you kind of pick, like I was alluding to earlier, early in the game, maybe it's just a normal crowd murmur. You know, once that's clicked, that's just always kind of running as a loop in the background. And so the operator can advance off that tab and be kind of sitting on the tabs that have the reactions and the buildups and so that they can get to those pretty quick. Like I said, there's only four tabs on there. Uh, one of them you can, like I said, toss off to the side once you kind of have your bed going. And they're really easy to get. It's, it's one touch. And like I said, on each page, there's, there's anywhere from uh, six to, to 18 buttons. And, and so it's, it's, it's pretty easy for the operator once they kind of get for familiar with the tablet, where to go and how to do it. And, and the, and all the reactions and all those things have a natural fade up and a natural fade out. You can mix them on top of each other. So you can layer different crowd reactions and, and the ambience with, with, with the build up to the reaction to of the moment. So the software that we're using and, and forgive me, I don't know the name exactly off the top of my head. You know, allows that functionality to kind of react to the moment, layer effects, and and get out of the effects in, in a pretty almost instant capacity. And you guys just wrapped up your first home series. Were there any goofs in that process? Did uh, did the operator? We won't we won't name any names, and everyone's learning on the fly here. But were there any moments where they you know produced a cheer where they should have uh, had a disappointed sound when someone struck out uh, on the home team, or you know cheered when a home run was hit by the A's? <laughs> no, Meg, I think we were able to to avoid those, and and part of that. Was because, you know, um, we were able to start testing these during the intra squad games and the league sent the tablet to us, uh, you know, at least for that last week of intra squad games. And, and, and our operators, you know, learned a lot there and, and about the loops and, you know, what, you know, so it didn't just cut out in the middle. Some of those early, early games, we had a few of those, but, uh, once the season has started, we, we luckily our operators have been, have been excellent and have been really dialed into the game. Knock on wood. <laughs> How many operators are there? Is it a, a rotating crew, and how much training does it take to get good at this? Yeah, right now we have uh, two primary operators who who handled most of our games. We are uh, training up additional staff just to have it. And like those, like I mentioned, the, the summer camp games certainly help. But because it's a tablet, you know, some of our operators have also taken the tablet home and watched other games and and, and played along with it at home and. and and just to see, to get more familiar with it. And we'll continue to do that with, with other members of our team as, as, they, uh, as we get that cross-training continued. 
I imagine that since you are trying to imitate the um, effect of a home crowd, you have a fair amount of latitude when it comes to this, but were you guys given any instruction from MLB in terms of just how hometown heavy you can go with your sound effects? Are you limited to how many disappointed reactions you can do in a game or how many sort of very boisterous cheers you can you can have the crowd emulate? There, there certainly was a, a memo issued, but but the big thing for all of us and what was issued and stated by the league is we want it to sound like a true home game in the sense of don't do anything you wouldn't do, but you know if your crowd would be cheering during a moment, uh, you know bases loaded, you can you can build up that that sound or that reaction of uh, to them, and so you know there's not a limit on it. You know we got to make sure that we're that we're not doing anything that. A normal crowd here at the ballpark wouldn't do, Meg. But, you know, uh, the league trusts all the teams. Uh, and, and so far, I think all the teams have, have, have done a good job of, of respecting uh, the game and, and what would it would sound like at their home ballparks. Yeah, that's got to be a, a tough line to walk. I mean, there's almost like a, a moral hazard there, right? Because you want to be realistic. But, you know, when you're the person who is deciding on the booze and cheers and you work for the Mariners, you know, not you specifically, but someone in your department, that's something that I assume the players are aware of, you know? And so if they are hearing uh, disappointments, then they know who to blame for that. It's not just fans who paid their money to come to the park and uh, be disappointed it is someone who's employed by the team so i guess that's got to be kind of a a tricky thing like you have to mirror real fan behavior as you said but you don't want to show up your players so how do you think about that yeah and kind of going back to the league you know they they issued the same device to all the clubs all the clubs had the same sound effect so it's not like one ballpark has a different reaction either disappointment or positive uh, than another. And so that also helps create some of that uh, consistency across the league. But, you know, we, we try to play it as straight as possible with our sound effects and the crowd reaction. How much latitude do you guys have beyond the sound effects that are supposed to imitate the crowd? Like, for instance, if you wanted to play music cues that featured the word bang while Houston is in town uh, later this season, have you guys gotten any guidance from MLB on that? Or are you going to be able to be a little sassy if you want to be? You know, I, I think throughout just the history of baseball, you know, we, we certainly have situational music. I don't think you'll see us do that with the Houston Astros. We have fun, you know, when obviously a pitcher leaves the game and we'll play hit the road jack and those type of things. Uh, but we try to keep it lighthearted. But I think as an organization, uh, we'll treat every team like we treat every team that comes in here. It's very dignified of you. <laughs> Do you know if the sounds that you're using that were provided to you were originally recorded at T-Bumble Park or, or were some of them or are they from all over the place? I think they're a little bit from all over the place. And if anyone has played MLB The Show, you'll notice, obviously, in the game, they try to make the ballparks seem as realistic as possible with just even the graphics on, on the video board or scoreboard. And and so what those folks for, for with San Diego Studios, who, who develops the game itself, you know, they reach out to clubs uh, for for those assets and, and images and photos, and, and they and they do go out to ballparks and record audio. One of the conversations that has come out of this is is trying to get uh, them uh, more access in the future, actually, to come out and get you know sound effects specific to each ballpark too. And and so I'm not sure where all their recordings came from, but yeah, they they try to get in ballparks and, and get the legit sound. I'm sure some of it is also done in post and, and some fully sound also added in, but. Uh, they they pride themselves on trying to make that game as realistic as possible, and, and to do that, you know, uh, they do send out uh, sound engineers to uh, collect sound effects from different ballparks. Have you or your operators come up with any favorite sounds so far, or, or least favorite sounds, ones that you find most convincing or, or least convincing that have kind of become your go-tos? I mean, if there are multiple types of cheers, let's say, is there a, a certain cheer that you favor? You know, uh, I, there is a sequence, I, I think, our, and it was funny, we were on a call with uh, a bunch of other teams a week or two ago, and it was all the different operators from different teams were talking about how they handle a certain sequence and what sound effects, you know, they felt, for example, you know, they're, uh, you use some of the, maybe the reactions for, like, the bat off the ball for the initial content, and it was funny, one operator would say, hey, I used the low one, another operator, I used the medium one, and <laughs> everybody has this different sense of, of, of 
of what it sounds like in their ballpark. So I, I think to each operator their own. And in talking to our operators, I, I do think they have a uh, they have a little sequence that they go through of, of, of you start here, then you go here, and if this happens, you do this one, and, and, and working through all the different combinations. So obviously the reason that you're having to think through this stuff at all is the pandemic and the inability of fans to be present at T-Mobile in person. So I'm curious how this has affected the ability of your staff to be present at the park and what guidelines or protocols you guys are having to adhere to in order to stay safe. Yeah. It, it is certainly a different environment and it's a new, new way of, of, of operating. And first and foremost, I commend the staff here at T-Mobile Park, the folks on our ballpark operations who, who've set up the protocols and made sure that, you know, all of us, not just the players, but everybody in the front office who, who's coming to the ballpark feel safe. But I also, uh, compliment and commend the marketing and production staff and all the others in the communications department and other departments that come in who are, who are working in this new norm. If you were to come into the control room at T-Mobile Park on a normal, you know, game last year, you'd have anywhere from you know, 16 to 20 operators in the in this room, and and this year, you, you know, you got to cut that in half, if not more. And we've taken certain positions, like our public address announcer and and our producer and, and the person who's doing the crowd effects. They are now in a completely different location, and so. We're working as a group that usually is, is cohesive in, in the same room, but now using different ways of communicating and, and not seeing each other. A lot of, a lot of times during a game, it's, it's a glance over your shoulder. You make eye contact with somebody, uh, uh, and they know what, what you mean and you don't have to say anything. And, and now it, it has to be done obviously over, over, over a comm. Uh, but you come in the room and, and there's plexiglass that's dividing different operating stations. All of our operators. You know, coming into the ballpark just to get in, everyone has to, uh, you know, do a home screening health check and get to the ballpark and depending on, well, all of us have to also have our temperature taken before you, before you come in the park. And depending on what tiered access you have, there, there are other steps to it. Everyone is wearing a mask, come into the control room. Everyone has to, you know, sanitize their hands. Your workstation, your clear comm in which you talk to everybody has been sanitized at the end of the night. All the equipment gets wiped down and, and, and cleaned up. And, and sometimes because of the limited amount of folks we can have in the control room, you know, some people are also now running maybe two positions because the two workstations are right next to each other. So it's definitely unique. It is, I'm not going to say it's challenging. There's certainly been some challenges, but our group has responded to them pretty darn well. And, and I think uh, when you see what we're still able to do with, with a lighter staff, and, and new uh, protocols put in place. We're still, I, I, I feel like we're still providing that level of production that people expect from, from our Mariners Vision staff here at Ballpark. Under more normal circumstances, do you conceive of your audience as mostly the people in the park as opposed to TV viewers? And how has that changed with no fans in the stands? There are still some people in the park and the players are obviously in the park. But in order to have things kind of translate to TV, do you need to do things differently than you would otherwise? And are you just sort of thinking of the spectators as the people who are not there as opposed to the people who are there as you would? Would more normally yeah that's a great question and I, even if we have fans in the ballpark you know they're our number one priority always but we do have different constituents even during the regular season that, that you know what we do affects them and you know that can be the, the viewing audience at home and the broadcast that can be obviously the fans here at T-Mobile Park when they're here who are number one priority but also the, the the team on the field you know what we do impacts them just as much as as the fans and so coming into this season, you know, when we were kind of mapping out how do we, how do we present Mariners baseball inside T-Mobile Park? You know, the, the two groups that we are probably more focusing on is, is, is the broadcast experience uh, for those of you watching at home. And then also the, the team on the field and staff of ours, Mandy Lincoln, who's our director of marketing, had a conversation with, with Scott Service before the season started and, and talked to the skipper about, you know, what what do what does he and what do the, does the team want to experience for these mm-hmm. games without fans? To also talking with our broadcast partners, both with Root Sports and and our Mariners Radio Network and what do they need and, and, and talking especially with the television director about, okay, you know, we have some additional assets to work with. I think everyone has obviously seen uh, the seat fleet or uh, even our virtual cheers. Hey, these are things that we want to do. We want to make sure you're aware of them. Is there a way to incorporate those into the broadcast, which is, you know, we may get into that, which is is a fine line to toe as well. 
But as we kind of went through this year in particular, it was the focus of the broadcast and, and the team on the field and, and for those here in the ballpark too, to make sure that the experience is, was good for everybody. I imagine that the action on the field dictates some of this, but it has to be difficult to know just how much crowd noise to interject into the broadcast at any given moment. You want it to feel like there are fans there, but when a ballpark is actually full of people, how lively the crowd is can really ebb and flow depending on what's going on in the game, what inning it's in, or what the score is. So how are you guys thinking about what the sort of ideal level of sound is when the game action isn't dictating, you know, disappointment or excitement? Yeah, it, it, I think the main thing, Meg, that you said there is really relying on what's happening on the field to kind of to, to dictate that and, and the situation. So, you know, I'll give you an example of, you know, if it's if it's the fourth inning and someone's on, uh, let's just say Marco's pitching and he may have a runner on, on second with a guy in scoring position and two outs have been recorded and he's worked the count to, you know, one, two, we're going to, we're going to run the, the, the two strike noise prompt in the ballpark, which then would obviously elicit a crowd response. And so if you're watching the broadcast, you'll occasionally see that, that they will take a wide shot. And if, if the, the situation would be a normal, like a situation from last year, if, if we would have been putting up a crowd prompt, we're still putting up a crowd prompt in the 2020 season, and thus that would elicit, you know, a, a bigger cheer from the crowd. And, and we treat it the same way, that, that if, if we take the crowd prompt off, usually our crowd would die down after the noise animation ran, and, and so we fade it out. But the situations, we're treating the same from a game presentation standpoint. And, and so if we put up a crowd effect or a crowd noise, you know, we knew that would elicit a, a cheer from the crowd, and, and thus uh, our audio operator will also play that crowd sound effect, if that makes sense. Yeah, you don't need the make some noise graphic now that you are literally making the noise yourself. And along those lines, I know MLB has made it possible for fans to send feedback about whether they want cheers or boos or some other sound, right, in the game day app or various other places. You can vote on those things. So how do you see that and, and how do you incorporate that if you do? There, there's a, I'm going to call it a GUI interface, but it's really just a website where that feedback is coming back real time. That, that is in front of our producer and our producer can react to that and, and work with our audio operator on implementing some of that feedback into the show. So it, it's, it's a, it's a really cool feature that it'll be you know, implemented for this year. And it's, it's a tool that our producer has at their disposal to look at and review and, and use that to help influence other things in the ballpark. You mentioned Scott's service earlier. I'm curious if you have a sense of how the players and the coaching staff have taken to the crowd sound. Is it just business as usual for them or are there players, and you don't have to name any names, but are there players who would prefer a quiet ballpark? Uh, that, that's a great question. And we, we heard early on, and I don't know if you guys have had a chance to watch any of our inside corners that were with uh, Marco Gonzalez and Aaron Goldsmith, but even in one of those, uh, interviews early on with one of the players, it was mentioned how much crowd noise they rely on it uh, during a game and how that would be weird if there wasn't. And so we got initial feedback, uh, you know, early on that, that we got a sense that the players would like some crowd noise. And part of my, my job function now is, is post game is, is to go down and help set up the virtual post game interviews. And on Friday night, we had uh, Scott Service spoke, I believe, uh, Taiwan Walker spoke, Kyle Lewis spoke, and all three of them mentioned the atmosphere and the crowd noise and the music and all had positive things to say about it and, and the energy it created and how it made it feel like a real typical home game for the Mariners. And, and so, you know, initial response from the players that we've heard from and from the skipper and, and words that they've said publicly has, has, has been, has, has said that, you know, this is, is helpful and that they're, and that they appreciate it. And so, you know, that feedback has been good. Information from our broadcasters has been also been positive from their standpoint. You know, we're, we're you know, I, I think we're going to continue to dial in and, you know, as we go, but initial feedback seems to be on the positive side. Yeah, I mean, there's been some research that suggests that that fan effect really does have some bearing on the home field advantage that teams enjoy. And so you guys uh, maybe have some actual wins above replacement this year that are possibly attributable to the, the scoreboard team and the production crew. So no pressure on you 
Some of the Fox Sports broadcasts we've seen have used CGI fans to try to make the park not only sound full, but also appear full. So was there any thought to doing that on the Root broadcasts, and why or why not? You know, I, I'm not out in on those levels, but I, I think when you do the, the CGI type fan bases, you know, it, it's more of a generic fan, and it's, it tends to be a duplicated fan, meaning that not every single person that, that is generated via graphics is the same thing. They tend to repeat, and there's algorithms in there that uh, just kind of mix up the pattern. Whereas at least the seat fleet provides every fan an opportunity to put themselves in the ballpark to provide their image that they submit. So I think it personalizes it a little bit more. Yeah, do we do we miss the, the crowd moving and that type of stuff? Absolutely. But I, I think the, the solution that, that we've been able to develop and a few other teams as well, it, it creates that personal connection with, with fans here. And it, it's it's funny to hear them. You know, you see posts from fans about how they're at the ballpark, but, you know, it's, it's their cardboard cutout, but you know, they, they take pride in that. And so I, I think the solution we have... Uh, Maybe not as dynamic, but just as just as important for our fan base here. Was there a, an uncanny valley effect for you? Sort of a disorienting sense of a full park versus the site of no one in the park. I don't know whether that applied either at the beginning or even now sometimes, or whether you sometimes forget that it's actually an empty park if your operators are doing their job and you're not currently looking out at the stands, whether you can almost kind of convince yourself that it's a, it's a full house out there. It depends where you are. And if you're looking out the field and, and I, you know, on Friday on opening day, you know, we're used to a, a full T-Mobile park and, and for our opening day ceremonies, you know, we, we, we take pride in what we do here. And I just remember like, man, we're, we're two minutes from going live with our pregame presentation. And it just, it, it felt weird just because if you were, when I was looking out the window, I'm just like, where is everybody in that sense? Yeah. But if you're operating like that, it's, it's, it's funny when I'm in the control room, I'm often not near the front window. I, I tend to be, you know, 10, 15 feet back. I'm as close to the field as you can get, but you can't see it. And when I'm in that mode or at a workstation or any of our operators are kind of in those spots, it, it's funny. It, it feels like a full ballpark just because the sense that you're using at that point is you're hearing. And even looking at some of the camera shots that Root has, if it's the low first shot back into the batter's box and the way our seat fleet's angled, it, you kind of get this false sense of, hey, there are fans in the ballpark. And I think the seat fleet's going to continue to grow. I think you're going to see it uh, as this homestand continue to get larger. The response has been great by Mariners fans. And depending on where you are, it does certainly feel like not an empty ballpark. Uh, the more they get added and uh, once again, they're not moving, but it, it's a great visual and the, and the texture of, of each individual photo just kind of provides that sense of, of that, that, that little, little bit of normalcy in the ballpark, with, uh, not just seeing green chairs. Ben, you brought up the seat fleet, and I'm curious, what is the production process like? Like, I have a lot of basic questions about the seat fleet, not the least of which because I am in the seat fleet. <laughs> what are they made out of? How durable do you think they are? How often do you think they might have to be replaced tell us tell us the nuts and bolts of the the seat fleet that's uh i'll do my best meg <laughs> so first and foremost if, if you want to purchase a seat fleet or if you want to learn about any of, of some of the things of, of the ways of being a participant virtually here at t-mobile park you can go to mariners.com slash fans and in there there'll be a link to the seat fleet and it talks about how you order them and, and how they're uh, in the in the process behind that, but th they're made by a local company here. They're they're not made of paper. It's a it's a coated. I don't want to call it vinyl, but it it's durable. In other words, if they get some water on them, they're not going to welt up or anything like that. And, and and they're pretty sturdy, pretty rigid. So that being said, if they do take a foul ball, they have a little gift to them, so they don't just break or or, or part of them come off. But they're designed also with a couple slats, uh, basically where your arms would be, and those fit the seats here at T-Mobile Park, and so they're secured within the seat. As I said, they're pretty durable. We, we anticipate them lasting for the full 30 games here at T-Mobile Park, and, and so far, uh, the few that have been hit by a, a foul ball, I think, have, have survived the, the initial contact. We got to work on their catching ability uh, a little bit, but uh, they, they look great also when you get right up close to them. 
What's happening to foul balls in general, even the ones that don't hit the cardboard cutouts? Do you know what's being done with them? You know, I do know if a foul ball hits the cardboard cutouts on the fly, that, that, that our ballpark operation staff is, is sending those to the to the person who is the seat fleet. As far as the other balls, you know, there's certain protocols in place for Major League Baseball about, you know, the ball and the cleansliness of it and when it can be used. And I, I believe those are just taken out of commission. I'll try to get an answer for you guys and share that with you what's happening with the, with the other foul balls, though. Is there anything about your job this year and, and the way that you're handling the ballpark entertainment that you think could carry over into the future if and when hopefully fans return and things go back to looking more or less normal? Have you learned anything or incorporated anything that you think might still apply or will it just be back to what you used to do? No, I, I think this whole year is going to be a learning experience and I don't think it's just one thing that we've identified yet, Ben, but what we have learned is, uh, and we knew this already, but just the great response that we've had from, from our fans to be involved in, in a Mariners game. And maybe there's ways to, there, there will be ways to continue to do this. And I'm not saying we'll continue virtual cheers, but there's things like that that, you know, we, we found that, that fans are willing to submit video content via, you know, their mobile devices that we could play in ballpark. You know, how do we continue to use the social media networks? To get fans involved in the show here at Tumble Park, I mean, uh, if you still use the hashtag True to the Blue, we are still putting up your social media posts in the ballpark because we want our, our players to see where Mariners fans and what they're doing at home and what they're watching. It, I, I do think there there will be hopefully some things that come out of this season as well. You know, for example, during summer camp and the inner squad, you know, we did some live streaming of those practices and some of those games. And so we may continue to look for opportunities like that. But I think just like any experience that we all have, I think there are going to be some things we learn from this that, that will carry over, not just for next year, but, but in the future. Well, we certainly appreciate you making the broadcast feel a little more normal than it might uh, <laughs> in this strange time. And we really appreciate you joining us, Ben. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And you guys have a great day. And go uh, Mariners. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Congrats to Jessica and Mike Trout on the birth of their son, Beckham Aaron Trout. And welcome to the world, Beckham. As Senator Palpatine once said, we will watch your career with great interest. By the way, after we spoke to Ben, we saw a tweet from Maury Brown that has a photo of the left field foul line at T-Mobile Park and one of the cardboard cutouts is Steve Bartman. I get the joke, but come on, Mariners. Megan, I agree that this is mean. Leave Bartman alone. I know Ben is not responsible for the placement of the cutout so I'm not criticizing him, but I think Bartman has suffered much more than his fair share of abuse. Just replace him with a cutout of some abnormally large child instead. Scare us all when the camera pans over there. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Benjamin Baker, Kyle Rechtenwald, Robert Beretta, Paul Bellows, and Michael Hunter. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon listing system if you are a supporter. I will likely do emails with Sam on our next episode. And thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will talk to you again a little later this week. Until then, we wish for few forearm strains and even fewer positive tests. Talk to you soon. As long as I can keep smiling Maybe I can fool the world, don't you see? And perhaps someday I'll forget you And lose this heartache that you left with me at night I'm never alone I'm afraid that I'll weaken and fall And I'm afraid that you will be gone I'm with a crowd but oh so alone